consider four reasons why this is truly the most astounding of all births. Truly it is. The first reason is that the birth of Christ is astounding because of providential guidance. Because of providential guidance. Look at the first five verses of Luke 2. Now, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which he called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, how did it happen that Jesus came to be born in Bethlehem? And the fact of the matter is no one could have written this script. You couldn't put this together. Only the Lord could have brought this together, these circumstances together in his timing, in his way. I mean, who would have thought that the IRS of that day would be involved in this? And yet, uh, Augustus acts in this role. This census has to do with assessing people for the, the idea of, of, of taxing them, purpose of taxation. It's a decree. It's a command. It's not up for vote by the general population. It's something you had to do, had to be done. The citizens have no choice in the matter. The decree applies to all the inhabited earth, it says, which is a, f- a phrase for the Roman Empire. Roman Empire is, in the first century is vast. It's, it covers so much of the world. It's just massive. And, and this is a massive project for the Roman government to undertake to tax everybody, basically, in their empire. But it meant a lot of revenue, a lot of money from taxes. Now, in order to register for the taxes, everyone had to go to back to their uh, their origin of tribal, their tribal origin. In this case, we're focusing on the Jews here in Luke chapter two. That would not be an easy trip. Nothing easy about this trip at all. It was probably 80, 90 miles or so, depending on the exact direction they went uh, from Joseph and Mary. The terrain was very difficult. Look at verse four. It says Joseph and Mary also went up. See that phrase? They went up from Galilee. To, uh, from the city of Nazareth to, to Judea to Bethlehem. And when Luke says they went up, he was not kidding. <laughs> you can take it very literally in a geographical sense since they were. this was literally going to be an uphill climb as they got closer to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is situated on, situated on a mountain that's 2,634 feet high. So when he says they went up, they went up. This is no walk in the park. Can you imagine being great with child like Mary was and going on this journey? Difficult journey. Verse 4 explains to us why it was they had to go to Bethlehem. Joseph was of the house and family of David. And you see that more than once in this passage, Bethlehem is called the city of David. David was born in Bethlehem. David was, in 1 Samuel 16, anointed by Samuel to be king in Bethlehem. And this is Joseph's ancestral home. He's got to go back here in order to be assessed to register for the taxes. So Joseph and Mary make this difficult journey through difficult terrain, all the way to Bethlehem, where Christ is to be born. Now, that is an amazing thing. Now, why is this so amazing? Well, for one thing, Micah 5.2, which I believe Kenny read, prophesied this would happen. It says in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, talking about the city of Bethlehem and region of Ephraim, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, very insignificant city, very small Nobody cared about Bethlehem. You're too little to be among the uh, clans of Judah from you, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth 
for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This insignificant town of Bethlehem would have the honor of being the birthplace of the one coming from eternity who is to come into the world as God in the flesh, that is Christ. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. <clears throat> Just like Mike said earlier today about Isaiah, this was prophesied some 700 years or so before this time. And, so it, and, and now it comes to pass. It's just amazing. It's, it's one of the many examples of, of, of God's amazing work and faithfulness to his word. And then if you go to Matthew chapter 2 and read about the story there with Herod, after the birth of Christ, he gathers the, the chief priests together and the scribes and all these people, and he says, where is the Christ to be born? And they, say, they answer him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5 too. And it happens. It happens just like the Lord said it would. Now that is alone is amazing enough that this happened. But there's something else going on here, and that is how it happened. It happened through providential guidance. Now think about this for a minute. The most powerful empire in the world on earth, Rome, is ruling the world. They rule the inhabited world, they call it. Vast empire. That makes Caesar Augustus the most powerful ruler in the entire world. And this powerful ruler issues the decree that, that the empire, everyone in the empire must register to have their taxes assessed to see how they would be taxed. That decree, that decree is what sets Joseph and Mary in motion. That's why they travel the distance. That's why they go from Galilee in the northern part of Israel all the way down south to Bethlehem in the southern part of Israel. And there's no indication that they ever had any plans to do that. Never, no plans to necessarily do this to make a difficult trip like this over rough terrain with a pregnant woman. But it's required by the Roman government. So it sets it in motion, this, this decree from Caesar Augustus. So what's the point? The sovereign God worked through the circumstances here to fulfill his word, to accomplish his purpose. That's what is amazing. Now, on the surface of it, on the surface of things, it only looked like this decree from Caesar Augustus was meant to benefit the Roman government, and that was true, it was, and that's all he cared about. That's all they cared about, the government of Rome. But God used it to carry out his purposes. Kent Hughes put it like this. He says this, Joseph and Mary appeared to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history. Isn't that right? Just seemed to be something we got to do. We have to do this. We have to go get taxed. They, they appear to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history. But every move was under the hand of Almighty God. Every move that's being made here in Luke 2 is under the hand of Almighty God. And so as you read Luke 2, it becomes, an apparent, it becomes very apparent. And I, as I read through Luke 2 at the beginning of the week, I thought the first thing I thought was, look at the providence of God in this. It becomes very apparent that as one person put it in, at one time in history, he says that an unseen hand is moving to orchestrate the events of history. And that's exactly what's happening. God does not leave his promises to chance he's going to see to it that it's fulfilled through his providential working and so the lord think about this the lord works through the most powerful ruler in that first century a pagan an idolater to do his will the caesar's purpose was to tax his citizens but god had a greater purpose than than, than that now augustus may have been the most powerful ruler in the world but he is still subordinate to god the ruler of all things Proverbs 21 and 1 says, The king's heart is as a stream of water. Where? In the hand of the Lord, right? It's in the hand of the Lord. 
He turns it wherever he will. Caesar Augustus, unknown to him, unknown to him, is involved in the fulfillment of prophecy regarding Christ's birth. Now, isn't that astounding? When you think about it, this is just the beginning of Luke 2. When you think about it, how astounding is that? The Lord seeks to, he seems to delight, by the way, in carrying out his plans through pagan kings. You see, you see it in the Old Testament, New Testament. You see it through pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar, Artaxerxes, Cyrus, Pharaoh. You see it with Pharaoh. You see it with, and now Caesar Augustus. Again and again, God is working through pagan kings to do his will. The providential guidance in the birth of Christ should fill us with wonder and amazement at the providential working of God. Secondly, the birth of Christ is astounding because of its humble circumstances. Its humble circumstances. Look at verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, as you already know, Mary is the betrothed of Joseph and She's pregnant, but not by Joseph. Mike made that clear today. Luke 135 says uh, that the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, because it's a virgin birth. It's a miracle. Now, you would think it would be more appropriate for the Son of God to be born in a palace. That would seem to be the, the thing to do, Right. But it was not to be, in this, in, once again, in the providential working of God was not to be. It was a humble birth. Uh, everything about this was humble. The local inn, it says here, which may have only been a simple shelter, by the way. Nobody knows what it was exactly. It was totally booked, completely booked, no room, no lodging place for Mary with fresh sheets, warm blankets, no continental breakfast offered anywhere. And I don't even like continental breakfasts, but not even that. Mary had to bear this child in the elements, in the night air, in the presence of smelly animals. She's, she wraps her baby in strips of cloth in order to keep him warm, <clears throat> in order to keep him secure, his limbs straight, as the custom was at that time. She did this, but there was little else in the way of comfort. And, then, and for lack of a better situation, she had to lay her baby in the manger, which we've heard many times here is a feeding trough for animals. This is where animals fed that's where she laid her baby. <clears throat> Talk about <clears throat> an unclean thing when we think of our modern hospitals and everything's got to be perfectly clean all the time. Amazing. But this is the humble state in which Christ was born. It's a sign of things to come in his life. Isaiah 53 would say he was despised and forsaken of men. John 1 says that Christ came into his own. His own did not receive him. Luke 9:58 would later say he had nowhere to lay his head. He's going to die a humiliating death on the cross, and he's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. Philippians 2 says that although he was God, he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And of course, we know that that's what our salvation is about, necessary for Christ to die for sin. That's why he died. That's why he rose again, to save sinners. I love 2 Corinthians 2, 8, 9. 2, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. <clears throat> says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, the poverty of Christ, might become rich. What an amazing verse. 
truly astonishing that the Son of God was born and lived in such humble circumstances. And all for what reason? To glorify God and to bring us to spiritual riches in Christ. So he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thirdly, the birth of Christ is astounding because of the divine purpose. Because of the divine purpose. Look at verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great, great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in this city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. Now, isn't it interesting that the first group of people that Christ appears to, apart from Mary, apart from Joseph, are the lowly shepherds. That's who he goes to first. They're out in the field. They're pulling the night shift. They're watching their flocks at night. To them, it's just another, this is the routine job they do night after night. This is just another shift as far as they're concerned. Nothing spectacular about this at all. Now, shepherds, by the way, add to the humble circumstances of the whole story. In In that society, shepherds were nothing special at all. They were uneducated. They were unskilled. In fact, they were at the bottom rung of the ladder socially, economically, every way. A lot of people didn't even trust the shepherds. They were unreliable. They were dishonest often. They, they were despised on the whole. And yet, it was to these men that the angel appeared. You know, he, think about this. He could have appeared to a Caesar Augustus and told him in advance what was going to happen. Didn't do that. He could have appeared to Herod. Matthew chapter 2, Herod asked, had to ask, where's the Christ going to be born at? He didn't, the angel didn't appear to him. Yet the angel announces the birth of Christ to these lowly angels. Again, the Lord works through the lowly, the humble, those who will not seek their own glory. So Christ might receive all the glory. It's always about him. It's never about us. Not only did the angel appear to them, it says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And what's the reaction of the angels? They're scared to death. I mean, the glory of God is, an, is just an amazing display of majesty. No one can remain unmoved by the experience. And the angel allays their fears because this is a night not of fear. It's a night of joy. It's, it's a night of great news. It's the best news in the history of the world this night. You know, we get a lot of bad news, uh, a lot of negative news that brings us sorrow and heartache. This week alone, we've talked about this already. He said... This one that, and we were just, Scott and I were just talking about this, the one that took his life in high school this week, this kid that took his life, my niece suffering from cancer, Jimmy's son suffering from cancer, uh, so many things that are happening that are, that are like this. We get all this kind of news. It brings us such heartache, but this is news. Look what it says, news of great joy. This is news of great joy which will be for all the people. It's for, for all the people. It's good news for everybody. It's good news for the Jew first. In Luke 1, 68 and following, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's good news for the Jew first. It's good news for the Gentile. Because later on in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, Simeon will say this, As he sees Christ, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles, he says, to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. The announcement of the birth of Christ is good news for everybody, for the Jew, for Gentile, for the lost, if they will receive it. If you're here tonight, if you will receive it, if you will receive Christ and turn from your sins and turn to him, it's good news for you. It's good news for the believers because Christ is our all in all. It's good news. This good news is spelled out in verse 11. Look what it says in verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those three terms, three key terms, Savior, Christ, and Lord, I believe, only appear together here in the Bible. Luke 2.11, all together. Now, he's the Savior. He's the one. He's the one who delivers us from sin. He's Christ, meaning he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one promised in the Old Testament, the one promised to come. And he's the Lord, meaning he's master of all. He's sovereign over all. He's as much God as the Father is. He's as much God as the Holy Spirit is. He's Lord of all, and it goes without saying he's Lord to every believer. And if anyone says otherwise, they're undermining the clear teaching of the Scripture. Obviously, the one thing that's obvious in the New Testament is Christ is Lord. Now, there's a subtle contrast to be found here. Subtle contrast. This baby is the Savior. He is Christ. He's the Lord. It makes it plain, right? But there's another person in this passage who's considered to be the Lord and Savior. Did you know that? That person is Caesar Augustus. The real name of Augustus is Octavius. That was his name, Octavius. He ruled from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D. The Roman Senate, when he became, became in charge, decided and voted to give him the title Augustus. That title means holy or reverend or esteemed or honored, something to that effect. He's the first Roman emperor to be given that title. Prior to this, this time, that title was reserved for the gods that people worshipped. But under the rule of Augustus, the Roman government worked to bring about the situation that the Caesars, Caesar means emperor, the Caesars of Rome would be gods. They would be considered divine. And they worked for that effort. They, they, they tried to get that done, and they did get it done. And about the time Luke's words were being written, this, this gospel was being written, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor, they were using Augustus' birthday as their, their New Year's celebration, their New Year's Day. And they were calling him Savior. They were saying Augustus is our Savior. There's also an inscription called the Mirian inscription. And you can read these words. It says this, divine Augustus Caesar, a son of a god, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. And in time, Christians along with everyone else would be compelled to worship the emperors of Rome as being divine. Or else be persecuted. So there are there two saviors here? Augustus and Christ? No, there's one savior here. Augustus did a great job politically. I'll give him his props for doing a great political job of things. But is he, was he the savior? No. Was he divine? No. There's only one that's divine, only one savior. That's Christ the Lord. Augustus is merely a sinful man like the rest of us. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Only, the, only Christ can bring us... Deliverance from sin. Political deliverance is one thing, but spiritual deliverance from the bondage of sin, that's what the true Savior Christ does. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, only the name of Jesus. So the divine purpose revealed to the shepherds was that Christ, the baby, would, this baby would be Christ the Lord, the exclusive Savior. 
No emperor can claim, ever claim, rightfully claim that title in God's eyes. Only one Savior. Make no mistake about that. This is an astounding birth. It's an astounding birth unlike any other in the history of mankind. It's astounding because it has all the marks of providential guidance. It's astounding because of the humble circumstances. It's, it, it's astounding because it fulfills the divine purpose. And fourthly and finally, the birth of Christ is astounding because of the heavenly praise. Because of the heavenly praise. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now the, the multitude of the heavenly hosts is a vast number of angels. Nobody knows how many who are giving praise to God for the birth of the Messiah. Now think about this. Tons of babies have been born in history up to that time. We were at the hospital the other day in, in Melbourne and You'd hear every once in a while a little musical tone go off. And we said, what is this? And they said, well, that's a, another baby's been born in the hospital here. And many babies have been born, but no baby born throughout history drew down heavenly praise. Only this one. Only this one did. And they proclaimed glory to God in the highest. This is praise reserved only for the Lord. It's heavenly praise. But there's a message. There's a message for people here also. In this heavenly praise, and it says this, And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, the text is not saying that, every, that God is pleased with everybody. It's not saying that. It's saying there's going to be peace among men, peace among mankind, among every, the world, with, with whom, those whom he is pleased. That limits the group. It limits peace to men of his good pleasure. Literally, it's to men of his good pleasure. It's saying they're people of his good pleasure. Those upon whom God's favor rests. You see, true peace is God's gift to people. It's this, you can't earn this gift of God, this gift of peace. You can't earn it. God grants us that only when we stop relying on ourselves or anything else and only rely on Christ for salvation. Then he grants you peace. That's interesting. Is What's interesting here, another contrast, Augustus had brought peace to the world in his reign. As a matter of fact, they say it lasted for 2,000 years. I don't know if that's true or not. I didn't check that, that fact. It seems like a long time to me, but it lasted for a long time at any rate. He brought peace to the world of his time in a military and a political sense after much, much conflict before this time. All kinds of conflict, and then Augustus comes in and brings this great peace that lasts for a long time, however long it was, I don't know. And he was praised for bringing this peace. People said, man, this is great that this guy did this. But he could never bring about the peace between God and man. Augustus could never bring about peace between God and man. Only the Prince of Peace Christ can do that. No one else can. He can give us peace that passes all understanding. So you can see what an amazing scene this is in the little town of Bethlehem. What an amazing scene with a multitude of angels praising God in light of the birth of Christ. You know, when you really think about the birth of Christ, when you really think about it, it's truly astounding. It's astounding because of providential guidance. God guided things providentially to get everything to work out the way he wanted it to. It's astounding because of the humble circumstances involved. It's astounding because of the divine purpose. This baby would be Christ the Lord, the Savior of all, those who come to him. And it's astounding because of the heavenly praise. And tonight, if you are so become so familiar with the story of the birth of Christ that it's lost his wonder, you need to meditate on these, this passage tonight, these truths tonight, and let the Scripture renew your love for Christ, and again, once again, in your desire to praise him and proclaim him to the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we are grateful for your word again. We pray that we will be those who, Lord, praise you truly. We're thankful for the birth of Christ. We're thankful for him being our Savior. We're thankful for him being the Lord, for him being Christ. Father, without him, we would not be saved. We wouldn't know what true salvation was. We pray for those here tonight who don't know you, Lord, that you will save them by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.